You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, welcome here, and it's good to see all of you with us this morning. And I just wanted to make a quick announcement before uh, we get into the message. For those of you who are new, or maybe you've been coming for a little while, Um, Next Sunday, we're going to have, after our service, um, a class called Introduction to Citizens, which kind of goes over the history, the short history of our church, and we talk about the vision and how to get more involved in citizens itself. So if that interests you at all, or maybe you're here and someone you know has been coming regularly, but they're not here today, um, please bring them next Sunday. We'll probably be in in the back room, but we'll give more details next Sunday, okay? And if you didn't already, turn to Mark chapter 6, where we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to see what it has to say to us this morning. I don't know if you ever went on Sunday drives. Um, Maybe you've heard of that term before, or maybe you were a kid and your parents did that? I mean, if you lived, like we live in town here and so coming to church isn't like a big deal, but if you lived of any different distance, maybe on the way home from church, one of your parents was like, let's just like take a little drive, you know, take a little bit the longer route home. I remember being a teenager and my dad would do that often and I just hated it, you know, just wanted to get home, but he wanted to see the countryside, wanted to look at different things. And now I find myself, even though we don't have a commute, I find myself on Sundays like longing to go for a drive. Okay, that means I've entered a new phase of life, I guess. I'm like, I just want to see the countryside, you know, and look at the fields and the cows and stuff. Um, We never do that, but I have this like longing inside of me. And this passage, in a way, does that. Okay, it kind of takes a little bit of a stroll through the countryside because what Mark is doing here is he is answering a question that is on the mind of the audience that he is writing to. So he is writing to churches in Italy, probably in the Rome area, and these churches are struggling under persecution and they're struggling to make sense of all that's going on in the world around them, mostly the bad things that are happening. And the question that is on their mind is, is this what the kingdom of God looks like? Like when God is ruling and reigning, when Jesus the king is alive, does it look like hardship and difficulty and struggle? So now here we come to the the third story actually. So if you've been tracking with us, last Sunday Sam took us through two stories where we saw that there is this like rejection. One was of Jesus, he goes into his hometown, and the other was of the disciples as they go out and do their ministry. They're being rejected. And now here we come to the third story of John the Baptist and there's another story of rejection. And so Mark has been writing to these believers, trying to show them all kinds of different things about the kingdom of God and all the different things about who Jesus is as the king. And now he's been landing on this, this idea of like, even in suffering, even when things are not going well, God is building his kingdom. So that's kind of like the overarching theme here that we're trying to like make sense of and understand and take in. But he's doing that now by taking a little bit of a detour to look at the life 
and death of John the Baptist. And if you remember in the fall, we actually talked about this as a Markan sandwich, right? That's what the theologians call it, literally. It's in the books, okay? A Markan sandwich where Mark has an idea, but within the idea, he's giving other little stories and ideas. So that's what we're going to do today. The big idea is that God is building his kingdom in the midst of terror, darkness, but we're going to take a little pause. We're going to go meander around a little bit first and look at the story of John the Baptist, okay? And we're going to begin with this idea that there can be a cost in telling the truth. There can be a cost in telling the truth. Look on your phone or look in your Bible and let's read these words again, starting in verse 14. It said, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like other prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So the word has gone out in the region there. And it is spreading around that there's this... There's this miracle worker, there's this teacher, there's somebody out there who's doing like magnificent things and people are wondering like, who is this? Is this the prophet of old or is this Elijah? Some are saying maybe it's John the Baptist. But when it comes to Herod, King Herod here, he says, I know who it is. It's John the Baptist. He's back. And what we discover in the story here is that it's actually coming out of a, of a guilty conscience or of some sort of like reflection. And that's what uh, Mark is going to give us. He's going to give us the background of what happens. And I mean, we just read the story of kind of like all the craziness that comes with it. But craziness kind of fits with Herod and his family. Okay, if you look up this family there's just some wild stuff that happens with them. And they are well known in antiquity for just the, the madness of the family that is kind of the Herod family. And they really like that name Herod, okay? So Herod in our story here had a dad named Herod. And he's like really well known. We see him showing up in other parts of the story. But he was like a madman, okay? Literally, this guy was like crazy, the different things that he would do. He married... Um, 10 women, okay, which is, it's a time of polygamy, so it's not like a big deal, but he had all these wives, and he had like 15 children, at least four of them were named Herod, okay, there's your little inkling that this guy really liked himself, Herod, Herod, they're all Herods, okay, and they've all been given different forms of leadership and different roles in the family, and Herod the Great was so nervous about losing power, was so nervous about any kind of like conspiracy that he had a number of his own sons murdered. He had a number of his own wives murdered. Like any little feeling, like a, you know, upset stomach that something bad was going on and he would like whack one of his family members. And so when we come to see what's happening in his son Herod, this is Herod Antipas, when we see what's happening in his life, it's no surprise that like the craziness and the killing kind of goes down to the next generation. And so Herod Antipas himself is living a life of parties and of like affluence. And he's also, you can see here in our text that he is intermarrying within his own family. 
Okay, and it's, it gets confusing because he has an older brother, Herod, who has a daughter, and then his younger brother, Herod, marries that daughter, and then Herod Antipas takes that as his wife. Okay, did you track with that? There's a lot of like madness going on there, right? And what we see when you kind of connect it to Leviticus and the old law, you see that it's, it's really clear, not only is there like madness to it, but there's actually laws that say what Herod is doing is wrong. So Leviticus 18, 16 says this, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, it's your brother's nakedness. Or chapter 20, verse 21 says, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So the law was clear. You can't marry your sister-in-law. And John the Baptist knew that. And so John the Baptist is like, he's a straight shooter. He's just going to tell the truth as it is. And so he says, Herod, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is breaking the law. And you are like, you're the leader of this region. And what you're doing is wrong. And you, you don't do that to a king, right? You, you don't talk like that to a king. And we don't know the details of how Herod did it, or sorry, of how like John the Baptist spoke this to him, but all we know is that he told Herod the truth. And where it brought him was into prison. Herod was like, okay, hey, I'm not going to let John just be out there speaking against me. And so he arrested him and put him in prison and locked him up where he spent the rest of his days John is in prison as the result of troubles. And listen, telling the truth often can bring us into troubles. At different levels of our world, this happens. And maybe you even have your own experiences. It can happen on a societal level, right? Depending on the society that you live in, there have been different times in history where the society has been more accommodating of the truth, specifically the gospel and the message of Christ. And there's been times in society where it's been more difficult to be within that context. We are in this interesting time where we are actually in the swing, right? Where we've lived in a time period, some of us are old enough, to experience when, it, when there was actually some like positivity connected to being a Christian maybe, or even with people who weren't believers, it was like, that's kind of like, a good thing a little bit. And now we've swung over to where society is saying, man, the things that you hold to and believe in, what you claim as truth is being perceived as negative, And it's really quickly moving over to being like, those are like destructive ideas. And so in the society that we live in, telling the truth can be Difficult and can actually lead to harm, depending on where the society is. Also in personal relationships. Maybe you've had to do this before, or maybe this has happened to you before, where somebody comes, or maybe you go and you speak the truth to someone. You actually tell them. Whether it's, again, telling them the gospel, or maybe it's just telling them something about their life. And that can come with a cost. And many of us, especially many of us like Canadians who love peace, you know, we just want things to be okay. We're just like scared about doing that at times because we know that it can like create some other problems, maybe even problems that we weren't even expecting or anticipating happening. 
Maybe the most difficult truth-telling of all, though, is our own truth-telling in our hearts. Like, at a soul level, when the truth of, again, the gospel, or the truth of a word that someone has spoken, when we actually hear that, do we actually allow that truth to really penetrate in? That sometimes can be the most difficult of all. We can point to society and all that's going wrong and get riled up about it. We can be afraid of that kind of interpersonal relationship connection, but really like telling ourselves the truth and letting the truth kind of settle in at a heart level is maybe the most scary thing of all. And it's often why I find myself even um, nervous about the silence around me, right? I'm just like, keep the music playing, keep activity going, because when it all stops, when like the mind is just there thinking, that can be a scary place. The question is, maybe this is just the question burning on my mind, is how do we do that truth-telling? If truth-telling can come with a cost, there's a couple options. Either we just don't truth-tell at all, we just keep our mouth closed and we don't say anything. Or we see what does it mean to actually tell the truth? How do we actually do that? And there's a lot of things that scripture has to say about that. But one text that really stood out to me this week was a text in Ephesians chapter 4. And it's within the context of believers, but it is a context that also applies to the people around us, the world around us, in terms of how we tell the truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 first says this, rather, rather than he kind of lists all these wrong ways of speaking, he says, now speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Then all the way down to verse 25, it says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. So Paul's saying, do that. Speak truth to each other. That's part of what it means to be in the fullness of Christ. Then verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him who labors, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may be given with grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and all wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as Christ has forgiven you. The overwhelming theme in that passage is your, your life and your words should be of clean conscience. So we're our lives actually will line up with the words that we are about to speak. And those words are to be of the root of them. The primary power behind them is actually like love and compassion and kindness. That's actually the root of it. Now to some of us, that sounds like weakness. That sounds like 
the wrong idea. Like we've got to like stand up. We've got to, we've got to win the argument. We've got to have the final word. But you don't hear any of that here, okay? Now you hear there is some words there of like, man, like be angry at the right things. There's some passion to be had there. But the overwhelming, the driving force behind our truth telling is a life and words that are driven, powered by love, which is exemplified by Christ himself. But listen, even when we speak the words in love, right? Even when like we have clear conscience, we are standing for what is right, we're standing on the word of God, all these things, even when we say that, the con- you walk away from the conversation, you're like, I think I was pretty loving there. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. There's still the response may be vitriol. Still the response may be anger. Still the response may be hard-heartedness, which takes us to the next part of the story here where we see on display for us on this kind of meandering story, right? On this road trip, we see then before us two lives that have hard hearts that are, are displayed in a different way. So these hard hearts are on display for us. And the idea of like a hardness of heart is, it's, it's a word picture that we're supposed to grasp and get. And maybe it best makes sense if you think of summertime, okay, remember summer. Think of that time and you think of maybe working in the garden or something. And remember like in July sometimes where it hasn't rained for two, three weeks, you're, if you're doing a rain barrel thing, your rain barrel is like dry and the ground is hard and you come with the garden hose and if you don't work that soil, if you don't till it up in some way, you're going to spray it with water and the water is just going to roll right off of it, right? It's just going to run away. It's not actually going to go in. That's what it means to have a hard heart. The thing that the plant actually needs, the moisture, the water that will continue to give it life, it is rejecting because of the hardness of it. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about hard hearts. We're talking about a rejection. And God can use all kinds of things to prepare the soil. He uses the the tragedies and the difficulties of life, but he also uses the beauty and the glory of this world even to try to like cultivate and try to work the soil so that when truth comes, it actually can penetrate. It can be life-giving. And so here we see two examples of hardness. The first one is just a, a blatant, cold, um, you know, complete hardness to it, which is in the life of Herodias. We don't hear a lot about her, but what we do hear in verse 19 is interesting here. It says, and Herodias, again, this is from what John had spoken. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Herodias is just like, kill this guy. I just want him out, done. But she has no power. She's got no authority. Maybe she's like talked to Herod a few times, but she can't be the one to actually like push the button and say, let's get rid of him. It's just total coldness, heart, nothing wanting to do with him at all. But the other is a subtle hardness. And this is Herod, okay? And they, they're both the same kind of hardness, but they they're manifested differently. And so Herod's is more of a subtleness to it. Verse 20, it says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, 
and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod does this interesting thing. He locks John up because he's got the power to do it. But every once in a while, he like listens to John. He takes him out, maybe has, him, has a little dialogue with him. And it says there at the end of verse 20 that he's actually glad to do it. He's like, John is almost like his little pet. He's, he's just going to bring him out. He's going to like toy with him a little bit. Then he's going to put him away. And he's just going to leave it at that. Herodias, total hard heart. She's like, off with his head. John's more like, eh, I'm just going to listen to him. He's kind of interesting. And then put him away when I'm done with him. Both of them are hard hearts. They're just different. And I think if, if, it, was, if it was me, and, and it is me looking at the text right now, I would think that the subtleness of the subtle hard heart is actually more something that, would, that I would face on a regular basis. This kind of, this idea of toying with the truth playing with it, having it come near me, but not really letting it in, even sometimes being glad to kind of like think about it and wrestle over with it, but then ultimately just pushing it away, just keeping it at a distance, almost like Herod here with John the Baptist. It's almost like a little toy that I'm going to allow to be close, but I'm not actually going to allow it to come in. I'm going to keep it at a distance. The Apostle Paul had a really similar experience in Acts chapter 24. I'm just going to quickly read these verses to see that this is not something like unique. This is actually Paul's experience as well. In Acts chapter 24, in verse 24, it says this, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given by Paul, so he went for him often and conversed with him. Here's the same thing happening with Paul and Felix. Paul's like, explaining, you know, like trying to like give all the arguments he can. And Felix is like pulling him in and pulling him out, pulling him in and pushing him away. He's kind of hoping for a bribe. I'm not sure how he was going to get the bribe. Paul's in prison, but you know, somehow get some sort of bribe and yet he keeps him away at a distance. Is that a danger for you? Even, even this morning? This idea of toying with the truth, of like coming near to its presence, even like being right here in this place and just kind of like allowing the word to be there and getting like kind of close, but not really letting it in. And the word here is clear that for God to soften our hearts, we actually have to allow that penetration. We actually have to allow that softening to happen. And so how does that happen? Let me just quickly highlight three ways where we can actually work with the Holy Spirit in softening our hearts. Ultimately, the overarching work that's going to happen is the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But how does it actually happen? And it's three ways, quickly. One is beholding. Okay, we don't say that word often, but beholding. It's literally like 
seeing God at work around us. I think a couple of weeks ago I mentioned that I was making sourdough bread, okay, two times, two sermons in a row, yep, I'm guilty, but making sourdough bread, and so one of the things that I was doing was I had this video that I was watching. It was a one of the cooks from the New York Times, and she had this really great video kind of like explaining the whole process. So I had my cookbook, and I had this video of this lady just like explaining every process. And after like the, the getting the dough ready and like three, four hours of proofing, comes to the point in this video where she like has this bowl, and she, I thought she was going to have like a little uh, prayer meeting there, okay? Because she's like, okay, she, she literally says something like, we're going to pause now and we're going to just sit here with gratitude at the magnificent transformation that has happened. She's talking about dough, okay? But she's like in awe of the work that is actually happening before her. And you know what that is? We're, we're believers, actually. We know what that is. That's actually beholding. That God actually in the, the beauty of this world, whether it's a, a beautiful sourdough bread, or maybe you've experienced this before, like on a, on a mountaintop or at an ocean, when suddenly like this feeling comes on you and you just like feel this transcendent connection, that's called beholding. Most of the world doesn't know what to do with that. They just think that's like an Instagram moment transforming. We know that as Christians as beholding. And let me tell you, that is a first step in softening your heart. It is acknowledging God is present here. God is doing something. God is in this world. He's in the beauty. You see a painting that someone has made. You listen to music that someone has put together. And you think God is actually there. He's given us the pieces and he's created us so that we can be creators. So we behold him. And secondly, we are hearing. So we're beholding and we're hearing. Paul says in Romans that faith comes by hearing. So we listen to the word of God as we take it in. Whether it's reading words off of a page or listening to the text on a you know, on some sort of audio version or hearing a sermon, some way we are hearing the word of God and we're letting it come in. And then lastly, we are trusting. At different points in our week, whether it's in the work that we do or whether it's on our drive home or maybe it's around the dinner table, in our heart of hearts, we begin to take small steps of trust. It may look like saying inside where nobody else can see, God, I believe you are here. God, I believe you are present. It may be saying, God, in this situation that I'm in, I believe that you are in control. It is small steps of faith, baby steps, beholding, hearing, trusting. Those are things that soften our hardened hearts. Because the hardened heart is not just something that we see in somebody else. This is a story of Herod and Herodias. It is not just something to kind of point to and analyze and look at as something that other people deal with. They are actually more like us than we would ever admit. And so we say, okay, God, soften my heart so that I'm not like the hard-heartedness that we're seeing on display. And the reason why it's important to have a soft heart is because of our last point here. 
And it's this, that there is purpose in our suffering. That there is purpose in our suffering. The story that we have just been looking at, just to recap, we won't read it again, is a wild story. Like, it starts with a birthday party. Herod is having a birthday party. Everybody's probably drinking a little bit too much. And then it goes into like this young girl dancing in front of everybody and everybody is just like really turned on by it and they're just loving it. And so it goes so far that Herod's like, okay, just like name whatever you want. And so then she says, okay, what do I do? Mom, what is it going to be? She's, Herodias is like, yes, this is the moment I've been waiting for. Get John the Baptist's head on a platter. And you're thinking, no way, right? Who's going to do that? Well, Herod, a man of his word, half drunk, okay, do it. I mean, is that like, not just the most craziest of circumstances, but the most like silliest, pointless reasons to kill someone? I mean, if you're here in this story as one of John's disciples, you're thinking, that's how it happened? It wasn't like John standing up and like proclaiming one last time for the truth and like all the spears kind of went into him. It was a drunken party, useless nothing. And it's in moments like that, if the, if the heart is not softened, there will be no way to make sense of something like this. And it's something that even the world struggles to make sense of when like crazy difficult, hard things come, man, how do you make sense of it? How do you take in that there is actually a God who could be in control of these things? J.L. Mackey, who is a well-known philosopher, Australian philosopher, he said this, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable Pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other small g God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. So Mackey's an atheist and he's like, this can't be the case. It's impossible that there's a loving, good God and he would allow the craziness that goes on. Now, it's a great sentiment. It's, it's a feeling, probably if we're honest, most of us have thought that, or maybe we still do think that. It does come with a lot of presumption, though. It comes with the, with the idea that Mackie, at some level, would assume to know more than an infinite God. That he would be able to say, I, I can't see how anything from this badness could ever be turned to good. Only only someone with infinite knowledge would be able to do that. And so when we ask questions like that, we, in essence, put ourselves in the place of God. Because a lot of times we can't see the end from the beginning. Some of us, though, who have lived longer than, I'm not sure what the line is, 30, 40 years, 20 years, we've been able to see some stories actually go from like total train wreck to redemption and restoration. And in the Old Testament, probably the greatest story of this is Joseph, right? This, this wild story of Joseph kidnapped by his brothers, sold into slavery, spending years in prison. 
and somehow rising up into power and all the way to the day where like his brothers are standing right in front of him. They can't recognize him. And in that moment, he chooses to, he does kind of mess with them a little bit, but he kind of like brings them along, tests them, and ultimately comes to the point where he brings the whole family back. And by the time his father is back, his father's old, and then over, after a few years, his father dies. And after his father dies, his brothers are like, oh man, this is what Joseph has been waiting for. He's been waiting to get back at us, but he's waiting for dad to be dead and gone. Now that he's gone, get ready, here it comes, right? The bad news is coming. And so they come to him and they kind of like beg him, like spare our lives. And in that moment, and if you're familiar with the story, it's probably the greatest line where Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph has lived long enough now to see that actually come together. What somebody meant for evil, God actually was able to, in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite ability to turn the story around, is somehow able to restore and redeem it. And there are times where we get to see that happen. And there's other times, probably there's people in this room, who never get to see the resolution that we hope for. And the world itself struggles to make sense of this. If you are, you know, believing in karma, then you do good and good will follow. You do bad and bad will follow. If you're a fatalist, then ultimately pain and destruction is just your lot in life. You're kind of like a determinist and that's what's going to happen. If you are a Buddhist, pain is just a mirage, right? You just got to release the desire, get rid of desire, and you'll ultimately get to nirvana. All this pain around you, it's just a mirage, right? It's not real. And if you're a secularist, well, then we're just like evolutionary stardust anyways. What are we going to stop? Everything's just kind of clicking along. And what ends up happening when a great tragedy comes is the world adopts religious terminology. Mark Clark in his book, The Problem of God, says this. It's a bit of a long quote, so hang with me. It says, after every terrorist attack or mass shooting, my Facebook news feed fills up with my atheist and agnostic friends offering prayers and thoughts to the victims and families of these tragedies. They have to borrow language from religious traditions because their own view of the world offers nothing to them. Several of my friends use the language of karma in normal life. What goes around comes around. But such words don't make sense in the face of tragedy. Karmic theology, when truly understood, blames the victims for their fate. So people borrow aspects of the Christian worldview when tragedy strikes. Because Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra-secularism, suffering is meaningful. God is actually doing something in the midst of it. And so in our story here today, we end with like a man's head is on a platter. And this is John the Baptist, who Jesus said is the greatest of all prophets. And so we're back to our story. We're back to our original question of like, is this what the kingdom of God looks like? Is this really what's going to happen? I thought we we're supposed to be the victors. I thought we we're supposed to be the ones who conquer. 
And Mark is trying to actually reassure them and us in the midst of this story that God's kingdom is going forward. Jesus was rejected in his hometown. The disciples were rejected in their teaching in the country. And even in John the Baptist's death, the kingdom of God is not held back. And so the reason that we can actually point to God's kingdom being built is not totally even in this story. The reason actually is in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why when we gather together as believers, that's who we worship. We don't worship John the Baptist. We don't worship the disciples. We don't worship all those people. We worship Jesus. Because at the end of our story, in verse 29 here, it ends with a funeral. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and they laid it in a tomb. And Jesus is unlike anybody else. Jesus actually experienced the same questions and struggle that you and I face. The same tragedy that the disciples of John the Baptist were wrestling with, Jesus actually wrestled with. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is asking God, he knew that great pain was to come. He knew that his death was required. And what does he do? He says, God, twice he says this, isn't there a, another way? Like, isn't there a better way of doing this? But nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And so Jesus goes to the cross through the pain and the suffering and ultimately dies on our behalf. But the story doesn't end there, right? It actually ends with his resurrection. And Jesus is the first to go for all of us into the fullness of the kingdom of God. He's seen the terror. He's seen the pain. He's seen the darkness. But he's also experienced the light and the hope. And so this morning as we see this story and we see the tragedy of it, I want to leave you with the hope of that message that Jesus has actually gone before us. And the kingdom of God, even in the midst of our pain, is moving forward. Not ignoring your pain, not in just shrugging it to the side, but actually saying that Christ has gone through it and he has conquered it. And so our hope and our trust is again in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this really challenging story, Lord. Thank you for the message that it has for us. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be softened to take in the truth of the gospel this week again. And Holy Spirit, would you work even now, in this moment, as we get ready to hear this song, Lord, would you bring to the heart the truths that we just heard, Father, the truths of the scripture, the hope that we need in this season. Not hope in a famous person, not hope in some sort of ideology, but our hope is in our resurrected King, Jesus. And Lord, make that real in our heart today. In his name we pray, amen.